Uh, I haven't been uh, checking the news today. I have no idea what's happening right now uh, with the election. Um, but I, I wanted to spend some time with you all tonight uh, praying uh, for what's happening in our country. Um, Tyler, would you put that first verse up for me? Thanks from First Timothy. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy. Um, I want us to read this and think about what's going on right now in our country, right? I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is not the first time something like this is mentioned in the scriptures. Um, the people of God are commanded to pray for people in authority over their lives. So we're commanded to pray for that. I don't know what you think politically, whether you're, um, you know, on one of the polarized extremes or, um, or you're, you're, you're like some pseudo third party moderate that's like everything is going to go down. I'm just trying to stay ethical or something. Or if you're apathetic about the whole thing, I don't know where you are. I just know that the command on our lives is to pray to pray for these people, to pray for our country, to pray for um, our cities, our communities. The reality is, as people of God, we do not place our ultimate hope in the tithes of the culture we live in. If the Lord Jesus waits, he tarries for a while longer, the United States most likely won't last forever. Most likely. No nation has so far right? There's ebbs and flows. Everybody who's born will die, and there'll be new people born, and they'll deal with new cultural things, and there'll be groups of people who establish institutions, and groups of people who guard institutions, and groups of people who tear down those institutions, and then people who say, let's build institutions again. And this kind of thing will keep happening seasonally. We do not put our hope in that as Christians. My hope and your hope is not in one candidate or the other or the United States or the world or post-United States or whatever the thing is, our hope is that Jesus is really a good king and he's really a good judge. And we need him to uproot and get rid of all of the evil that exists both inside and out. And we need him to establish his kingdom. But of course, that's terrifying if that means a lot of people don't get in. And so he waits in order that all people might have the chance to receive him and enter in. And in the midst of that, what we're called to do is still pray. Why? Not because our hope ultimately is in our nation, but because these leaders of our nation and the policies that they make, they really do affect everybody's lives. Like, they really, really do. If you love your neighbors, you should care about the policies that exist in our cities. If you love the kids that are in schools, you should care about the policies that exist in our cities. If you think what you're doing with your money is good and faithful to God, then you should care about the tax dollars that get paid. Or if you think the government is doing great things, you should care about the tax dollars that get paid. The stuff that happens policy-wise affects every single aspect and area of our lives. Many of you in this room right now are, are, are only able to be in school because you're receiving grant money. That's happening through political decisions. These kinds of things, right? Anyway, we're going to pray for, the, for, for what's going on tonight. Um, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. So what's going to happen? I'm going to put a, a few different prayers up on the screen. I'm going to pray that and then just have um, maybe quite a bit of silence afterwards from me. And I encourage anybody who wants to, to, to fill that space with your voice. You're welcome to pray out loud. You also don't have to. You can just sit and meditate and, and say a wonderful prayer that the church has prayed for thousands of years. You can just say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. That would be a fantastic way to pray tonight. All right, so we're going to pray for a bit, and then I'll try to keep the, the sermon after the fact a little shorter. Um,
But Tyler, would you put that first prayer up? Almighty God, to whom we must account for all our powers and privileges. Guide the people of the United States in the election of officials and representatives that by faithful administration and wise laws, the rights of all may be protected and our nation be enabled to fulfill your purposes. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. O oh Lord, our governor, bless the leaders of our land that we may be a people at peace among ourselves and blessing to other nations of the earth. Lord, keep this nation under your care for the president, the president-to-be, and all in administrative authority. Grant wisdom and grace in the exercise of their duties. Give grace to your servants, O oh Lord. Father, make, your, make us your people, um, not a people who are tossed to and fro by the waves of culture. And I pray that we would resist um, the way that we speak and act, that we, we would resist the parameters that are set up for us by a polarizing culture that has zero grace. Would you make us wise, keep us from retreating and just exiting everything. Teach us what it means to be faithful in the midst of it all. That we might serve our leaders and love them and pray for them and look out for the welfare of our nation. Lord, have mercy.
Father, teach our people to rely on your strength, to accept their responsibilities to their fellow citizens, that they may elect trustworthy leaders and make wise decisions for the well-being of our society, that we may serve you faithfully in our generation and honor your holy name, for yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Father, do a mighty work in our country tonight and teach us um, how we might live in the years to come by the power of your spirit to the glory of your name. And we pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So I actually remember, uh, <laughs> I remember eight years ago, um, when President Obama was elected into office for the very first time. It was a Tuesday night. It's always a Tuesday night. Um, and, and on the way out the door, we were actually meeting at the time at 5, I don't know what direction I'm at, 535 Macaulay in the First Presbyterian Church gym down there. And I remember walking out and sort of uh, going outside the, the glass doors there to say goodbye to people. And literally like sirens were going off, fireworks were going off, people were cheering. This is you know, like the world is totally changing, like hope is entering the world. Uh, truly, I mean, people were flooding out of their dorms, like a party was happening in the streets around campus, you know? Uh, and tonight's just gonna be a different night, uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's all. But, but, but so as, as, as in some ways, as depressing as that is, there's also a bit of a, a, a humbling pullback, like, uh, and this, this is not a, any, I'm not making any criticism, particularly over the president um, right now, but, but I, I think that what everybody was assuming would happen, like forever and ever, amen, sort of thing that night, didn't actually come to pass in a way. There might have been great things that happened, but like, turns out we still have problems in our country, and it turns out we're divided a lot, and sin still wrecks us and divides families, and race issues are crazy right now, and, you know, there's injustices happening all over the world, our debt's crazy, and... Do you know what I mean? Like, like for as good as everybody thought it was going to be at 9.30 that night, it may not quite be as bad as everybody thinks it's going to be at 9.30 this night. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay. I don't know who's getting elected. I really have not been paying attention to the news, but um, save the surprise for later so I can be so grateful. Um, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> In response to this kind of stuff, y'all, uh, I've been thinking about this for quite a few weeks. I was going to talk ultimately all about sort of politics and, and talk about our hope for, um, for God's future kingdom. But um, there's a lot of things that I, I was thinking that would really, um, I think, fit well on an election night to talk about. And some of them are like, what's our duty? What's our role? And, and things like discipleship, you know, like the end of Matthew, there's this commission that Jesus gives to his disciples that, that we, we champion a lot here in the ministry of the house, um, where he says that he wants his apostles to go make disciples of all nations. And by the way, if you're a Christian, this, this is something you should hear for you. Okay, you are called to go make disciples of all nations, to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach people to obey everything Jesus commands. Okay, this is something that Jesus lays upon his followers, right? And I was like, man, that's a good thing to talk about, right? Um, the, the, in, in the beginning of, of Acts, when, when Jesus tells his apostles that they need to be, and we should hear ourselves in this, because they represent us, the future of the church, that, that he wants them to testify to him, to tell people about what they know of him, where they are and in the city around them and in the country around them and to the ends of the earth. That would be a good thing to talk about or that, again, the hope for the future stuff. But tonight, actually, what I really want to talk about more than anything is work. I want to talk about work tonight. Um, I think my suspicion is that many of us 
are missing out on one of the most tremendous ways we are called to respond to the world around us and to what's happening right now, and it's work. I've been, I've been talking to some, some folks at, um, at my church recently about what's happening politically, and I said, here's what gives me hope, that right now there's a 25-year-old who's deciding to enter into politics because of what they see, and they want to make some changes. And we might not see the fruit of that for another 25 or 30 years, but I have hope that people are making decisions like that kind of stuff, you know, right now, right? And so I, I do pray that tonight the Father um, helps us by sending His Spirit to, um, to, to tinker with and think about something that in some ways is just so obvious to us, we never look at it much, like work, um, and, and that we might actually find some real, real help from the wisdom of God here, right? So um, we're going to start by looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis, a little bit of time in First Peter, um, mostly, mostly there. Um, but Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, would you throw that up? Thank you. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done. His work was creation, okay, of everything. Uh, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So right off the bat, I just want to point this out. It, again, it might be so simple that all of us know it. It might be something we never think much about. But work is good. Work is good. It's not a product of sin in the fall. It's not this like arbitrary drudgery that if we could just stop sinning, then we could figure out a way to never work again or something like this. When the scriptures lay out work, the first one who works is God himself. And, and after every time he did some work, he, he, there was a statement that he made over his works. It's good or it's very good. We're encouraged to see work as a good thing, as a part of who God is, not just even a part of our creation, but a, an expression of who he is as he interacts with his creation. Work is really good. In the beginning, God worked. And some of what it means for us to be made in God's image, I don't know if you, you know that, in Genesis chapter one, God says that we are made in his image, and this is unlike anything else in all of his creation. Nothing else is made in his image in the same way human beings are. You are made in God's image. That's, that does, that's not uh, just for Christians or whatever. That's every human being is made in the image of God in a particular way. Although there's a bit of mystery tied into there, right? Because then he says sort of male and female, he made them in his image. So it's almost as if like in some way, maybe the image isn't complete unless we're corporate. But, but that's beyond tonight's sermon. We can get into that some other time or something, right? Uh, <clears throat> but, but so part of what I think it might mean though to be made in God's image it is the fact that God calls us to work as well. So would you put up, um, Tyler, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15? There's a couple places to look, Genesis 2, 8, but th that section in general. Um, and here's what God did with, with Adam, with, who's representative of all mankind at this point, right? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the last time we saw work was God himself. And so it's kind of interesting. Everything else in creation, I guess, just does its thing. But, but here, humans are given a command to, to do a little bit of what we saw God do. So we're called to work and to keep. And, and work just really, I mean, there's many, many definitions, I suppose, but just means to create, right? To, to unfold. It's like the chief way that we get to obey God. His earlier command is to be fruitful and multiply, and one of the ways we can do that is through our work. God made, I say it like this, I think it, it sounds a little heretical, and I think that's why I like saying it, but, but God made the earth beautiful, and he commands us to unfold that beauty and make it even more beautiful. Could, could God have made everything, I guess, in some sort of static, finished way, and then just like said, enjoy? Sure. That's not what he did. 
And we have no inclination that he was sort of motivated to do this because he couldn't do another thing or something like that. Like he did this and was excited about it. So theologians will often talk about this journey that we see in God's redemptive history from a garden to a city in the end. I don't know if you know much about um, what God's promised. What Jesus Christ has promised is that one day heaven and earth will unite in a way that, that we've only seen a glimpse of in Jesus Christ himself. That the heavenly city will descend upon the new earth and we will live forever and ever and ever in resurrected bodies physically with Jesus. And we'll actually work and play. If you are here last week, we'll do those things too. Like this is the kind of stuff that we have hope for. And, and it begs this sort of question, well, if God's sort of end vision, the thing he has in mind, the end game there is a city, why didn't he just start with that? Why didn't he just start there? Well, some of it is, is because of what we're talking about tonight, because of work, because of work for us. So God, he, he makes everything beautiful and he says to us, make it more beautiful. And some theologians said things like this, like that God makes wheat, we get to make bread. God makes grapes and we get to make wine. We get to work the grape and make wine out of it. Bread, our wheat is good. Bread is very good, right? Like, but grapes are good. Wine is very good. That kind of distinction there. Like, and then this is stuff that's teased out by theologians like, and people who spend their days just pouring over the text saying, what are the implications here? This is some of the stuff they're pulling out of it. Work, this is what we get to do. And, and, and we get to unfold God's creation and literally make things more beautiful, be fruitful and multiply. We get to expand and extend all of these things in his creation and tease out implications of it through work, through tending to creation and unfolding its beauty. This is part of how God made us. I'm saying that as compared to this is sort of a product of the fall or, or something after sin entered the world or something messed up or God forgot to do something and so I guess we got to work. I don't know if you know this, that's actually, a, it's a very unique dynamic to the Hebrew narrative. So in, in ancient Near Eastern myths, oh, there's all sorts of people explaining through God's stories, through mythology, how exactly humans came to be and why actually we work so much. And virtually every single myth that begins to explain work talks about work as drudgery. That the gods were like so exhausted from like tilling fields and they had all this power so they decided to just sort of make humans to do that work for them. This is a very common theme. And maybe because of some of the drudgery you experience in work, that kind of makes sense to you. This is sort of what we make when we make God in our image. How many of us would, would look around the world and say, you know, one of the greatest things we might get to do in this world is work. And this is what the Hebrews have been proclaiming from the very beginning. It's what the Jews have been proclaiming. It's one of the chief ways, listen to this language, that we get to participate in the life of what God is doing. Work is one of the chief ways that we get to participate in the work that God has do, is doing in the world. What do you think about when you think about work? Is it that? Do you think it's one of the avenues, one of the chief avenues? Because statistics would say that you're going to spend about 50% or more of your waking hours working. Do you think that is one of the chief areas where you get to participate in God's work in the world? This may be a strange way of thinking about it. I've said this uh, in one way or another at the house before. But So I talk to parents um, uh, quite a bit, actually, um, who, uh, who pray for their children when they come to college. They actually talk about the, the things that they hope for and the ways that they pray for their children. They, God, please provide my son or daughter with kind and courageous friends. Please provide them with brothers and sisters in Christ who will love them. And his amen might come in the form of you. 
Like you might actually be the answer to that prayer. Or God, please give my son or daughter a community within which they can learn about you and continue to grow in the likeness of your son, Jesus. And his amen is sort of coming often in the form of a ministry like this. It's a wild deal when I start thinking about that. That some parent in Franklin, Tennessee, because we've got tons of people from Franklin for some reason, uh, like that some parent in Franklin, Tennessee is like praying to, to that, that when their kid comes to college, that, that, they, that they don't fall away from the faith, that they grow. There's usually probably a lot of fear in it or something. I don't really know. Um, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but, but it's sort of strange for me to think, holy cow, like what if I'm on the receiving end of that and God's like, don't worry, we're sending Jason. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, like, like it just feels like such a crazy weight. Like tr truly that, I, I, that sounds, I don't know, in a way that sounds kind of arrogant, but like that's how God often is working in the world. Like you might be that for others. Like my family prays almost every single day for God to give us our daily bread, okay? That, truly, our family almost every day prays that. And, and, and he, so far he's provided it. So far every day we've had something to eat and I have definitely eaten bread every day, okay? Um, <laughs> So, so how do you think God provides that? How does God go about answering that prayer? It, it's not a magic box outside my house. It's not that. It's not like a, we, don't, we don't actually have a big garden in the back. But even then, I don't control and command the rain and the soil and, and, and the animals that come and do. I don't, even, I don't know anything about farming, so one day I might be in trouble. But, um, but God provides it, and this is stuff that's been echoed throughout generations in the church, this kind of language, that God provides it through the baker and the farmer. God provides my bread through the truck driver and the grocery store clerk, through the person paving the roads to those in, in factory, paving the roads to those who are in factories, like making bags for the bread. This is sort of the, the things that God marshals in order to provide daily bread for, for me and my family. And this might come out a little bit later, but it's really hard for me to tease out, like if one of those jobs is uniquely more important than the other, all of them are required in order for God to just answer that simple little prayer, God, would you give us today our daily bread? God answers my prayer so far every day, and how does he do it? He does it through people. That's how he does it over and over and over again. What other prayers are people pay, praying all over the world and how is God equipping and calling his people, the church, to participate with him in answering those prayers? That's a question I have in light of this sort of thing. Like what kinds of prayers might be going up all over the world? Prayers for justice, prayers for peace, prayers that honest and ethical congressmen and women would take leadership offices. That's a real one in this season, right? Prayers for food, prayers for jobs, prayers that kids will be taken care of in schools, prayers for weddings, prayers for friendships. And how does God so often answer all of those prayers? Through his creation. The, the, the theological word for it is through agency. It, it, we usually don't expect when we pray those things for God to sort of like do something that we would naturally, like really quickly just say that was a miracle. Like literally, like that person didn't exist before and now they're on a ballot and they just came to life as a 47-year-old who's ethically upright and more. We don't expect that. We begin to pray for leaders and we expect that somebody will come out of the woodwork with their willpower intact, choosing to sign up. And we, we may, if, if we're astute and paying attention, we may give thanks to God for that. That God often answers prayers through me and you. I'm gonna call, I'm gonna call uh, what I wanna focus on though in all this, what I'm gonna call most of what he's doing through answering prayers is actually calling us to get to work. He's calling us to attend to his creation, to, to pay attention to it, to guard it, to keep it, to work it. 
He's ushering us into his work. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on Sabbath or something. I don't know how common that is. Uh, but, but, but one of the unique things about it that I think doesn't get any airtime is the fact that, that in the midst of his command to take one day off, his, his, part of that command is you actually need to labor for six days. Right? That, 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 that's the command. Labor for six days, and then on the seventh day, take it off. I don't care if it's, if it's harvest time or famine time. Take the day off and, and, and dedicate that to the Lord and trust in his work. Rest. God rests, you can too, kind of thing, right? But, but in the midst of that command in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it's repeated a number of times. It's labor for six days. And friends, I don't think most of us in this room work or rest well. Okay, but, but, but and, and many of us, man, if you're here long enough, you're gonna hear us talking about rest, okay? Because that's a real big problem for us. We, we escape and we get distracted and all this kind of stuff. We don't rest, but neither do we work much, which I wonder if that's one of the reasons it's hard for us to rest because we're just so mindful of the fact that we haven't worked really for many of us. Anyway, right now, so many in our country, so maybe even in this room, we're praying for better leaders in our families and cities and countries. And I really do believe that God is trying to address that through you, through me. He's ushering us into his kingdom work in this world. For those of you in school right now, one of the primary ways that you are, I think, is, is offered to you to see work, one of the primary ways you're working right now is actually through your education. Your work, the thing that, like, it's crazy how many people come together and say, please do this for you, right? Often parents, the government, like, subsidizes loans and all these kinds of things for, for you to be able to do this. Our, our cities are asking for it. Businesses are asking for it. So many people in our, in our nation are saying, and there's, there's, like, stats out there that talk about sort of... Uh, you, you know, uh, the effectiveness of college and there's negative stuff out there too. But, but still, it's crazy how many people come together and say, please do this, please do this, please do this. It's like our culture is saying, please, 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 this is your work right now. Do this, learn, be educated. What is your education about? What's it for? If this is one of the main ways that you're called to work, I'm, I'm working here in a college ministry context. I'm assuming that most of your college students just translate if you're not studying to whatever else you're doing most of your hours of the day or ought to be doing most hours of your day. Uh, uh, what is your education for? What is that work supposed to be about? And tonight, I wanna challenge you to consider thinking about your education, not as something for yourself, but as something for others. As a way in which God is calling you to love him and to love others. That this work of being educated at the university that you have before you, that it's a way to participate in God's work in the world. I wanna invite you to consider your education that way. Consider the fact that the end game of your education is not primarily about you, but about others. It's not primarily about you finding meaning, but expressing it. It's not primarily about you doing something to get paid, but about participating, this is a loaded sentence, but participating in an interdependent social culture that God set up that God set up, and I'm not talking about the U.S., I'm just saying the way God created us to live. Do you, do you remember the story that Adam, before sin entered the world in the narrative, Adam was lonely. That wasn't a flaw in God's creation design. God created us to need him and need each other. He didn't make us in a way, he doesn't even desire us to be people who are self-sufficient. He created us dependent beings, beings who recognize loneliness and lack when we are alone or cut off from him or others or, or the world in a way. That God set this up 
for you to participate in an interdependent social culture. So that, and this is what I think he's, he's gunning for, so that radical gift exchange is the norm of our lives. That's what we're all bringing to the table. We're just bringing gifts for others. It just turns out you have stuff that I, that I need and I have stuff that you need, and it works great when we just give it to each other. And nobody has any needs. That's how it works great. We got a lot of problems in the world, so we do this thing called money instead, but that's a different context. That's a different conversation. We are so often, I think, and we think about your education and your peers and the way you guys think about school, we're so often busy thinking about our own worth and our attentions and what makes us feel good that we miss the invitation to participate in this calling that is so great that it addresses our worth. It demands all of our attention and it not only feels good, but it's proclaimed as good. Work. Work for beauty's sake. Your education, you should be translating this as I say work. Your education right now, for the sake of beauty, for the sake of creating and multiplying and being fruitful, work for the sake of others, learning, studying, taking your classes, these things for others' sake, in order that you might love your neighbor and glorify God. Work to the glory of God. I had to sort of pick one because this is mentioned a lot in the scriptures, but Tyler, would you put up 1 Corinthians 10, 13? There's a lot of stuff like this in the text, right? In the Holy Scriptures. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As if that's possible. Do all things to the glory of God. Sit here right now for the glory of God. Listen for the glory of God. When you leave this room and as you're on your way back to, your, to wherever you're going after this, do that to the glory of God. As you consider getting ready for bed tonight, do that to the glory of God. As you go to bed and you consider what time you go to bed, do that for the glory of God. And when you get up tomorrow, may the first thoughts that you have be to the glory of God. Like, do all things. Spend and save, work and play, all things for the glory of God. If God Almighty invites you into his work, think about this. If he invites you into his work, what does that say about you? What does that say about how much he values you if he would let you work with him in his projects? If God Almighty is calling you to love others and glorify him with everything you do, wouldn't that require all of your attention? And work is good. It's a reflection of the way God is in his creation. Do all things to the glory of God. But this is hard for us. And I think it's hard for us primarily for one reason. I think it's hard for us because we forget who we are. For some of us, if you're not a Christian, maybe because you don't know who you are. You've never been told who you are in Christ. I should be kind of careful here. We, are, we have um, identity conversations that are happening all over our culture and our world. Christ has some things to say about us that nobody else says. And if we forget what he says, it's really, really hard for us to work for others and to do all things to the glory of God. All of what God has called us to happens out of the context of a very particular relationship. So, so again, it's like shooting fish in a barrel here, right? But, but here's a passage of scripture that begins to address some of who we are in him. It's a very wonderful passage from 1 Peter. This is something Peter says about the people who are in God. Listen to this robust language, okay? And, and savor it a little bit. You are a chosen race. See yourself in the midst of this. If you are in Christ, see yourself in the midst of this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This language, chosen. How many of us want to be chosen? Royal. Man, maybe as an adult that sounds cheesy. I've never met a kid who didn't want to be royal. Ever. What little girl doesn't want to be a princess? What little boy doesn't want to be a prince? Have you ever met one? Holy, which means set apart. How many of us have this desire that we can't shake to be recognized as a bit unique? And then, of course, seeing this juxtaposed with this other promise that we're in community, that's wild because sometimes being set apart, we think, means alone, right? What would it look like to be set apart and, and, and to be part of a community still and have the whole community even be set apart, right? This, this got language of purpose. How many of us want purpose in our life, to know what we're supposed to do and what we're about? And we have a name. This, that gets into psychology all of a sudden, but the ability and the importance of, of name, the ability to and the importance of naming things cannot be overstated. And covered in mercy. These are the kinds of things that, that, that Peter here is saying God establishes for us in Jesus Christ. Who, who am I? Who are you if you're in Christ? Who are we? Well, chosen, royal, holy, in community with a purpose, with a name, covered in mercy. All of this God establishes in Jesus. And we as the people of God are reminded of it in the sacraments of the church and in the rhythms of our participation with our people, the people of God, the holy nation. But when we forget this, when we forget that kind of stuff, these deep created needs, these are needs that we have, you guys. God created us to live out of this identity and when we do not identify with it, the hunger for our identity and our worth is so great that we cling to anything and everything around us to get it. We want our romantic interests to choose us and to set us apart and to give us a purpose. We want our jobs, so we gotta talk about tonight actually, our jobs to choose us and set us apart and to give us a purpose. On, and you could look at almost anything in your life. One of the prophets talks about um, this man who goes out and cuts a tree down and with this wood he, that he cuts down, he makes a fire and cooks himself a bowl of soup. And, and then with the rest of this wood, he actually makes an idol and then he bows down and worships it. But, but it's, it's a crazy story. It's like, dude, you cut down the tree. You made the idol. Now you're worshiping it? Like you, you literally just used the, the, this idol's brother to cook soup. What are you doing bowing down before it? But friends, we'll do this with anything. We'll do this with anything. We will go anywhere and try to get worth, to try to get identity, to try to feel chosen, to be set apart, to believe that we have the significance of something like royalty, to find community. If we forget that, we will. And instead of seeing our work as a way to bless others and to participate in, in the work of God, we see our work as a way to establish our sense of self. That your education and my education and your work and my work, it's all about me. And maybe that, that language sounds too petty or too like, angry or something. And so instead what I say is I'm just trying to figure out who I am all the time. And it's just about my passions and it's about what makes me happy. And it's, about, it's all me. It's all me and I language, the whole thing. Rather than the work we do as a way to love others, it's a way to get love from others to us. It becomes an idol. And like any idol, it's, every idol does the exact same thing. It demands everything and it delivers nothing in the end. Every single idol. 
the reason it's so hard for us to do everything to the glory of God is because we forget who we are. So we need to be reminded of that often. This, friends, it's one of the reasons the rhythms and the seasons of the church are so important for our lives. It's one of the reasons that, we, that, that Christians for ages have prayed in the morning. It's one of the reasons they, 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 they remember the scriptures and they study them often. It's one of the reasons they gather weekly. It's one of the reasons that they celebrate sacraments. It's because we forget so often. And we need to be reminded. I was reminded recently, um, not through the rhythms and sacraments of the church, but I was actually reminded really recently of what good work can look like if it stopped making it all about worth and self and all this kind of thing, and I saw it as a way to participate in loving God and loving others. And, and I had this, um, recently I had this teaching come from my son. So uh, Tyler, do you have that video ready? I don't know if you can do it or not. Can you? So just watch the first 45 seconds of this if you can. You can just shut it off after that. It's my son teaching my middle daughter how to read. Check this out. No, you're doing oh. the opposite of that. Oh. <laughs> It goes on for another three minutes. It's awesome. Uh, so I, that means way more to me than it probably does to you guys. But, but I, so many things about this I love, okay? So many things about this I love. Not the least of which is watching his face as he's trying to figure out how to do what he wants to do. Like he sees her, he sees her pronouncing something wrong and I can see him go like, you know, and he's trying to like, he's never done this before, you know? So he's like, this is the first time he's trying to teach her how to learn this, right? Um, so so I, I was thinking about this moment uh, so my son's name is Jack, and I was thinking about this because of, of the way my son works and the way he thinks about work. And I want to just tell you a little bit about him, right? First of all, my son wants to be invited into every kind of work, every kind. He likes to play, to be sure, but the line between play and work is pretty blurry, right? Like he works at play and he plays at work. I don't really know if there's a difference sometimes when we're healthy. But when I say invited, I mean that when he sees me doing something, he wants in, and it's everything. Like he wants to learn everything. And he's not thinking about his worth. He's not, y'all. He's not thinking, what do I want to do with my life? He's not thinking, who am I? Am I worth much? You know, if I say no, does that mean daddy doesn't love me? Like, I don't, he's not thinking all that stuff. He's trying to just express who he believes he is. He's alive and he can help. And that's as simple as it gets. And he's ready to go. So he wants to help me do construction on the house. He wants to help me work on the car. He wants to help me mow the yard. He wants to help cook dinner. He wants to help build fires. He wants to help move furniture. He wants to help read. He wants to help teach somebody else how to read. He wants to work because he wants to help. That's why he wants to work. He wants to help because he really, I mean, this language he probably wouldn't use, but I, this is actually probably what's going on in his head some way. He just wants to participate in all the great work going on around him. He wants to sh have a share in that, but he also wants to get better. And I don't know if you have ever thought about this. I think this is one of the greatest treasures and greatest hints about work that God has buried into his creation. 
that doing work well feels really good. Doing work well feels really good. And, and I can try to like make this like super complicated and talk about because it like helps somebody else better. And we can get to that in a second. But there's just some like, there's something just really, I don't know, pure and basic and, and created in, in it's like a rudimentary way. That like digging a trench sucks, but if you dig it perfectly, it feels better than poorly, you know? Like, like if you can throw a baseball really, really far, I guess what you wanna do a lot? Throw a baseball really, really far. That's what you wanna do if you can do it well. If you don't throw a baseball very well, you probably don't get super excited about throwing a baseball. I've rarely met somebody after a certain age who really loved to play a sport they were terrible at. It does happen, it's just really rare. Most of us wanna do the things we're excellent at. So if, if you like drawing or, and you're good at it and you're developing skills at it, and by the way, what I mean by that is not like you're better than everybody else in the room. If you see development and growth and you're better than you used to be and you keep seeing that, you probably still have a love for it. It's one of the ways God made us. It, doing work well feels really, really good. If you have a good memory and you can function on low sleep and you have steady hands, guess what kind of work you might really enjoy? Yeah, being a surgeon, you might love it. But if you don't have steady hands and your memory sucks and you don't work on that well and you need like nine hours of sleep every night, you really, I don't care how much you think surgeon sounds awesome, you probably will hate it, probably. And it's, if, if you have all those things though and you want to be a surgeon, I, I don't think that you'll like it just because being a surgeon means like you're worth more or something like that. It's just because you'll do it well. The word for this in, in our basic language is just competency. And I, I really do think that in God's grace, and this is so marvelous of him, that, that when we are competent in a thing, it makes us feel good. And it just turns out that competency really does help us love our neighbors pretty well, right? If I'm drowning in the water and you jump in to help me and you don't know how to swim, you're not much help. Like you probably should be competent. It's really great that you have this heart to, to jump in and save me, but you'll just make it matters worse, you know? Like, I'm truly, like competency, it's a basic thing, but it's really important. It helps us love neighbors well, and it's also just really cool that God has made it so that we actually feel good when we are competent. And the point of this, friends, is, is this. You're in college, learn, okay? Uh, so many of you, I know this, you just, um, this just sounds mean. I don't know, this sounds mean. Um, I think a lot of you just see college as an opportunity to find yourself and to make friends and to experience things. And th those are great things. Those are great, great things. But then I see so many graduates who are just shocked because they get out of college and they're like, I don't really feel like I'm very competent in some areas I need to be competent in. And it's like school's fault. And I'm like, well, what did you do all in college? They're like I was trying to figure out who I was. And I'm like, well, that's great if a job was hiring you to have discovered who you are. But a, a job wants you to do a thing and you never learned how to do a thing. So that's... That just, it, that's okay, you just, it's a weird expectation. That's all I'm saying. You now have to start learning how to do a thing and that might take you four more years, that's all. Do you get what I'm getting at there? Okay, anyway. Um, it does not help you love your neighbors very well if you're not very competent in something. It doesn't help you love your neighbors very well if you're not growing and learning and becoming good at a thing. It also does not probably help you glorify God very well through your work. One of the best ways to glorify God and love your neighbor right now is probably for you to be educated really well in order that you might participate in the ongoing work of God blessing others through work. 
My son is blessing our family with his education already. He's eight years old, right? He's teaching his younger sister to read. And, and I, I realize that that might sound silly or that might be kind of rudimentary or whatever, but like there's a few things that are happening in that context that I'm really grateful for. He's allowing his mother and I to sit back and give thanks instead of be right up in the fray and not able to sort of pull our nose away from the book a little bit and see what's going on. Right, what you didn't see is just to the right, my other daughter was, was um, <laughs> she just thought she was hilarious. She was actually hilarious. She was taking Jack's pants, because I don't know if you could tell, but he was pretty much naked. Uh, and so he, she is taking Jack's pants and she's pulling them up backwards and they go up to her armpits and she's just going like this, trying, <laughs> trying to distract my other daughter, you know, the whole time. And, so, and Anna and I, because Jack's teaching Blythe how to read, we're just sitting back taking it in. And if I was sitting there, I would have been like, Audrey, stop, stop, stop. I'm trying to teach Blythe how to read Jack another time, dude. Uh, you know, and I thank the Lord it's not me teaching her how to read. But Jack's teaching her how to read, and we get to do that. And he's bringing laughter into our home. And what's driving that work? Because that's work for him. He could be doing something else. What's driving that stuff? It's not his worth. It's not his anxiety about what he wants to do with his life. It's just a genuine desire to participate in all the work going on around him. And he wants to love others. In that instance, particularly his sister. And he's able to do it in that video in some ways because he's actually putting in time to read. The dude sits up every night in his bed and he just reads and he reads and he reads. Last night he was reading a book about how football works. <laughs> uh, and so I go, I go up to his bed, I was like, dude, did you learn anything about football? And he goes, he goes yeah. He goes, so there was these guys and they were playing this game called rugby and, um, <laughs> which, which is perfect, you know? And it gets better because then he goes, but the, and, and through the story is, I, I forget some of the pieces, but eventually he goes, and then there was this school called Havid, and they, uh, he even said it like somebody from Boston. He just like mispronounced it, you know? Uh, he was talking about Harvard, and I just love like Harvard's name gets mispronounced, you know? Um, it, it was wonderful, and he's reading this story, and I, he picked that book out from the library. He just, I, I like football, and he watches football with us, and he decided he wants to really learn how it works. And he's not sitting in front of this book going like, oh, this is so boring that I have to read. There's just a delight he's taking in learning. And I think he, he knows at a very basic level, I think he knows that as he grows and as he learns and as he's educated, he might just be more equipped to be able to have more influence in different situations. That he might be more equipped to participate in the work that's going on around us. So it may sound silly to you, but for my son, I'm sure reading a book about football means he doesn't have to ask me so many questions that he feels like he shouldn't be asking all the time. For him, it means he can talk to me about some of the stuff that he hears his mom and I talking about when we watch Seahawks games. Go Hawks. You know, like that's, that's some of the stuff that he does, okay? Like he, that's one of the reasons he's reading though. It's, it's, it's a, it, there's a pretty basic thing there. If you take the studies that you have right now, and some of you are doing very technical degrees, and if, if that's what you're doing in school, then some of the expectations, some of the hope is that you really do technically learn how to do some things, okay? Those of you who are doing liberal arts degrees, you should not expect to come out technically proficient. What you should expect to come out with, if, if you've attended to your education and put it to work, is you should come out having developed a wide history of thought to be able to spot things like um, trends in culture. And you, you should be able to sort of recognize when somebody like Hitler is rising to office because you studied some history, you know, kind of thing. Or uh, that's not a play on today. That really was not. That really was not. There's a fantastic book called, whatever, I'm not gonna, never mind. I'm not gonna defend it. We'll see what happens, okay? Uh, but if you're getting a liberal arts degree, the hope is you're a well-rounded citizen coming out of college, ready to enter into many, many different fields. But you're probably not very equipped for a skill. So what should you expect if you have a liberal arts degree? You should expect to walk into almost any job saying, I have no clue what to do, sir, or I have no clue what to do, ma'am, but I will work very, very hard 
very, very hard, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of thing. And that's just some of your expectation, you know. But if that's the position you're in right now, some of what I'm asking you to do tonight in light of what's going on in our country is I'm asking you to work, to work. Because the, the, the only way that God wants his people in the world isn't prayer, although he does want us to pray. He doesn't just want his people in the world standing on soapboxes speaking about Jesus or coming to church services or anything else as if for some reason what matters to him is your quiet time and your church times and your Bible studies, but then the rest of your week, you just gotta like do a bunch of drudgery to get some money and then come back. Like God actually, uh, many theologians would say he hides himself in your work. He wants to go along with you in your work and he wants you to love others through it. And, and there isn't a hierarchy of jobs in his kingdom. There isn't. You'll be very hard pressed to come to the Lord and say, Lord, which job is most valuable to you and get an answer. There was a study recently I put on the House Facebook group. By the way, if you're a student, you, um, we have like, <laughs> you guys are all students. <laughs> I don't know what I was asking. Uh, um, uh, their social media stuff may be marginally helpful, but the, the, the Facebook group for students, which is different than the Facebook page, whatever, um, th there is a lot of stuff shared there, like content-wise and event invites and like roommate requests and job opportunities and those kinds of things. You may want to try to find that. Um, but, but in there, I, I posted something recently about um, a, sort of a study at a national level that law clerks make just as much as garbage collectors on average. They both make, now you're going to freak out about this number. I don't know where it came from, but it's $80,000 a year on average between the two. Um, and, uh, and so what was interesting about that study, though, is that most of us in this room, if we made a hierarchy of jobs, which I just said I don't think God does, that we would put law clerk above garbage collector. But the question is, if we lost all lawyers and all garbage men, who would we miss more? Yeah, that's not a, that was, that was, that was rhetorical. I'm assuming everybody's going to answer garbage men, right? Like, and so in a way I go, who really would we value more if we did, you know, kind of, does that make sense? Like, like, anyway, anyway, there may be no better way for you to love your neighbor right now than through your work. That's kind of the point that I'm getting at right now tonight. You please pray, please learn about Jesus, please make friends, please learn about yourself, all that kind of stuff. But right now, what our world needs, and I think what God is asking you to do is to become somebody who can participate in an interdependent social culture. That you might actually love people through how you spend most of your day rather than trying to find 30 minutes to do it in some service project somewhere. Make all of your life about this kind of thing. Loving God and loving others. All over the world, people are praying for God to answer their prayers. Tonight, we're praying he gives us good leaders and he brings us peace and justice on earth. And his plan is to send people in response to that prayer. I pray that those people are equipped and prepared for good hard work. And some of those people might be you. But even if that particular work is not yours, you're invited to see work as a way to participate in God's ongoing work in the world to love him and to love others. And to see your education as a part of how God is equipping you to do just that. Friends, please see your education and your work as something for others. Let God address how he wants to through his church. Let him address all the questions you have about you. Let's pray and let's worship the God who chooses us and sets us apart and has mercy on us and, and makes us holy and all of these great, great things. And let's worship this God that calls us into working with him. May God send us out into the world ready for every good work, equipped for ministry. May we offer our work and offer ourselves to his service, trusting that he is planning to employ us in his kingdom work even while we sleep.
Father, train our hearts and our minds for your service. Lift our eyes to, your na- to our neighbors and our city and our country. Teach us to love them, not just through our demeanor or our words, but also in our work. For you are present in our work and we get to be like you in work. And we get to spend so much time working and being a part of the world that's going on around us. May that too be a place that you say it's mine and that you say is holy and that we find you alive and moving in. Holy Spirit, come. Make us, or make our minds and our hearts new for the work that you have before us. And, and um, may we know that we're invited to work alongside you in loving others through work. Hear our praise now. Continue to form our hearts even as we praise you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.